Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. And this week, our guest is one of my favorite authors, Jennifer Egan. And Greta reads folks like all the books, all the modern fiction. So she's a lot of data points to compare when it comes to favorite authors. And Jennifer Egan is one of your very favorites, Greta. Yeah, she wrote a book in 2011 called A Visit from the Goon Squad, which actually won the Pulitzer Prize that year. No big deal. And the last chapter of that book involves a PowerPoint presentation from the point of view of a little girl. And it is one of the most magical, beautiful, heartfelt PowerPoint presentations that I have ever encountered. I'm a little offended that you think it's better than my PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> I make a lot of PowerPoint presentations for you, and you don't appreciate them, I guess is what I'm hearing, and that's good. I got to wow. up my game. That's fine. Okay. I'm sorry, right. buddy. I didn't know this is no, where it's this okay. conversation was going. But yeah, I mean, you know, maybe just a little, little more heart in there. All right, fine. <laughs> uh, one of the things I love about this conversation with Jennifer Egan is that she is very honest, about how hard creative work can be. I love that she's going to be pretty frank with all of us about how sometimes your first drafts are going to suck. Yeah, she's super honest about the fact that her newest book, Manhattan Beach, started out as just a complete disaster to the point where she even thought she was going to have to abandon it for a while because she was just like, this is trash. But turns out it all came together in the end. Tell us about Manhattan Beach. So in Manhattan Beach, we have three main characters. The first one is Dexter Stiles, and he is a mobster. And this takes place in, like, you know, World War II kind of. So it's like old-timey New York mobster stuff. Yeah, the good, good, like, sweet spot of old-timey mob. Yes. Scorsese-esque mob. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Though, you know, you know me. I haven't seen any Scorsese Right, yeah. You were just nodding along. You haven't (laughs) actually seen. Theoretically, yes. I agree. She's read all the books. Like, (laughs) 75 this year, Greta? I mean, I'm I'm aiming for 75 by the end of the year. Oh, my God. I have three more weeks. Okay. Dexter Styles is an old-timey mob boss. <laughs> yes, so then we have Eddie Kerrigan, who works for Dexter and then disappears. Dun, dun, dun. And then we have his daughter, Anna, who grows up without him, essentially, and is kind of trying to figure out where he went and why. So this is, at its heart, a crime story. It is. And yeah, when we talked to Jennifer Egan, we found out that her family kind of has a history with crime, but not in the way that I might be suggesting now. I'm always interested in crime, and I think part of that is just my family. I mean, my grandfather was a a police detective and ultimately commander in Chicago on the south side, uh, Edward Egan. And there's a lot of law enforcement kind of inclination on that side of the family. And I was actually very interested in being a cop. 
um, and thought huh. thought pretty seriously about taking the police exam every year until I was too old because you can only take it until you're 35 <laughs> in New York. I think there my... needs to be a word for that thing where like you you're indecisive about something and then you just wait long enough and then it just can't be a thing anymore. You know yeah, what I mean? I do. There's gonna be. I bet there's a really long German word for yeah, that. Yeah, there must be. Oh, I think about that a lot, especially with like turning onto the road in the right direction. Like I could have taken that opportunity, but I just didn't. And yeah, now it's over. Exactly. So um, so I'm always interested in crime. I mean, if you if you tell me, oh, it's a crime story, I'm immediately interested much more than, for example, if you said, oh, this is a father daughter story. I would think, right. eh, what, what else has it got? Because that's not going to be enough. Why did you want to be a cop? Well, because I, I, I guess, you know, I don't, that's a good question. Why did I? <laughs> I mean, crime is inherently dramatic. There's a reason there are so many crime stories out there. You know, we immediately know why it matters and that it matters. Lives are at stake. Someone has already done something that requires action and more things may still happen that require action. And lives might be lost. Those are difficult stakes to create in fiction. But if you start with crime, they already exist. It's a little like sea survival, which is another, you know, genre I bring in. The stakes are inherently high there. You know, we we know that something bad has happened. We know that more bad things may happen. Um, And watching the struggle of human beings against the the natural elements is another kind of primal uh, dramatic scenario, just as one human being having wronged or killed another is inherently dramatic. So I guess I wanted to get into that drama and see it more closely. In a way, this answers the question of why I never took the exam, because finally, that is drama that I think I'm I'm better able to explore and exploit as a fiction writer than as an actual police officer, where, you know, ultimately, I think that the kind of picturesqueness of the job would be subsumed by the danger and the, the you know, the, the real nature of police work. Absolutely. One of my other favorite characters or storylines is Anna Kerrigan's. She works at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and she's she's 19 and she initially is sorting. What is she sorting? Screws or something, right? She's it's like measuring the most, uh, small, she's measuring small machine parts to make sure that they're uniform. She's not quite sure what those parts are. And this is a, a line of work that I heard about. Actually, I learned from one of the many women I helped to interview as part of an oral history project for the Brooklyn Navy Yard and the Brooklyn Historical oh, cool. Society. And she described this work and the sort of building in which it took place and um, and many things about the, about that job came pretty directly from, um, from her, the, that long interview with her, which was really helpful. Uh, Anna finds it very boring. Right. Um, this woman did not have those complaints, I should hastily say. She seemed very <laughs> pleased to be doing what she was doing. Um, but Anna wants something more visceral. She feels a kind of distance from the war and wants to be closer to it somehow. And she's looking for some kind of experience that makes her feel that she's sort of touching it in a way um, and, and, and just more engaged with it than, than she feels measuring these parts. Yeah, there's this magical moment in the book when she sees undersea divers for the first time. And it's she essentially sort of like looks at them and is like, I want to do that. I want to be there doing that thing. 
And so a lot of the story ends up centering around her convincing the men who run these systems that it's okay for a woman to do this job, which is very physically demanding and super intense, but also something that she feels totally capable of making happen. Yeah. I mean, she has, a, in a way, the conversion experience she has looking at those divers is this is sort of analogous to the experience I had looking at a picture of a diver in the Mark V uh, diving costume or dress, which anyone would recognize with the big cylindrical helmet and the right. big boots and the lead belt. When I saw that and learned that there were civilian divers working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard helping to repair ships and analyze the damage to ships from underneath, the minute I saw that image and, and learned that that happened at the Navy Yard, I thought, I have to use that in some way. This book has to be about that in some way. And I, I don't even really know why. I've never even scuba dived. I'm afraid hmm. to. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I thought you were going to say when you first saw the diving suit, you thought, I want to be inside that suit also, which for me, like even picturing that, I'm like, no, that's, that's not for me. <laughs> no way. If I wanted to do it, I prob or or had done it. I probably wouldn't be writing about it because then mm. I'm not getting that experience of of living a different life from mine. Um, so no, it was more a sense of the excitement that could result narratively from that experience, and even even just an excitement to have the experience. I I looked forward to knowing enough about what it felt like to do that work that I could write about it persuasively and in that way kind of experience it myself. It felt like it was not a choice. I was I was drawn toward it. And uh, and it was really fun to, to speak to divers and learn about it. And in fact, I did wear the 200-pound suit. Did you? Briefly. <laughs> but not briefly enough. <laughs> um, it's very heavy. Wow. Were you able to walk in it at all? I think I took one step. <laughs> yeah. So one thing you've talked about a fair amount as you've been doing press for Manhattan Beach is how difficult this book was to write and how awful the initial draft was. And I just want to thank you for doing that because I think in general, it's easy to forget how hard things are. And it's easy to gloss over that stuff when you're talking about accomplishments and successes. And I just really love the idea of a Pulitzer Prize winning author talking about like, yeah, it really sucked. <laughs> like it was not easy. Yeah. I mean, one thing is it, it becomes it's I, I think it's important for me to talk about it because I also forget how hard it was. <laughs> I mean, there's a really strange way in which books become artifacts and they they seem to lose their connection to human life once they're between covers. And even I feel that. And so when I finally get into the next book and find that I'm struggling, I try to persuade myself that I that it was just as hard the last time, but it's very hard to believe it. You know, A Visit from the Goon Squad was sort of the best I could do. Like there were there were things I tried that didn't work that I'm still bummed about. Um, it was the best I could pull together when the time came to publish it. It had a kind of thrown together quality for me then. But it sure doesn't feel that way now. Hmm. And so it cast a very long shadow over me as I worked on this and knew that this book really was not going well for a long period. I would have thoughts like, not one thing about this is as good as Goon Squad. Oof. You know, if you had a boss who talked to you that way, you would quit. <laughs> <laughs> or I would just cry a lot. I, well, I did that. 
<laughs> but I, you know, I, I'm not very supportive to myself. And the solitariness of writing becomes a real issue in these moments because I'm all I've got. And mm-hmm. I don't help myself sometimes. I, I don't reassure myself sufficiently because I don't seem to have the resources to do that. And one of the reasons is I forget how difficult each project is for a certain period. It's not always difficult in the same period. Every project has its mm. difficult struggle. In this one, the difficulty was knowing enough about the period and not just on the level of clothing, cigarettes, and cars, but really what the past was for people who lived at that time, because that's what we all bring to the present, and that's what really defines us. Um, Knowing all that to such a degree that I could really move around and do what I do as a fiction writer, which is find the humor, the absurdity, uh, the extremes of, of experience. That's what I'm always looking for. Mm. I couldn't do any of that for a long time in this book because I felt too stiff. I didn't know enough. And so I, I knew that I wasn't I didn't even seem like me as a writer. I was I was really a kind of stiff, um, you know, weak version of myself. And it was difficult. But I'm pretty used to, I mean, this, I probably came as close to abandoning this as I have to any project I've, I've wow. worked on because I could see that it was bad, but, and I could also see that to make it good, I was going to have to work so unbelievably hard. And I thought, is that the best use of my time? Right, because right. if I can't make it good and I, I felt unsure that I could, then all that time is just going to be wasted. Do I need do I want to take the risk of throwing good time after bad in essence? And I, the reason I stuck with it was it really had everything to do with the research because no matter how badly I felt about the text itself as it existed for me at that time at various times I always felt electrified by the research, no matter how wonky or arcane. (laughs) So if I could be at Crunch Gym reading a book called How to Abandon Ship and and be riveted to the point where I, you know, was on the elliptical 10 extra minutes, (laughs) that was a good sign because there's there's no reason I need to be reading a book called How to Abandon Ship written in 1942. (laughs) Um, So I had a lot of experiences like that that made me think, first of all, this research has to be leading somewhere or I simply wouldn't be as interested in it as I am. And also... I'm so interested in it and enjoying it so much that even if, you know, God forbid, this book really doesn't work out, this time won't have been wasted yeah. because this is important. And and some of it was, was legitimately – I could legitimately call it important in that I was helping to contribute to the historical record by assisting with oral history of various sorts and in various realms. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is an evolutionary advantage to forgetting how difficult something was? Probably. Right? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the truism is that it's like childbirth, um, which I think is, is actually really 
true in that having accidentally twice had kids without getting to the hospital so late that I couldn't have drugs. Um, <laughs> when I got that, when I was on my way to the hospital late the second time and realized that I was once again too late, only then did I remember how horrible it had been the first time. <laughs> and I said, I can't do that again. But guess what? It was too late. <laughs> and guess what else? I don't remember. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't know. There's something kind of divine about that, I think, you know? Yeah. It's a survival I, skill. It is. And I think sometimes it's good to not just not know how hard things will be. I mean, this is true of so many processes. There, In no way is this limited to writing fiction. I mean, there are so many projects we embark on naively. And thank God, because part you sometimes you only know how hard it's going to be when some of the work is done. Um you know, it really is like that. Like, you know, I think I was skiing with my kids once and we were on this hill that was really too steep for us. And as we got like a third of the way down and my youngest was crying and he said, I can't I can't do the rest. Yeah. And I said, look up. And he looked back up at this very steep part that we had already come down. And I said, we already did that much. And, you know, this is I don't mean to be simplistic, but that's kind of how it is. <laughs> it's how it is with writing, too. In just a minute, we find out what Jennifer Egan is obsessed with. Who refused to sell and why? Those are stories I'm dying to find out about. You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Anderdet, we like to talk to well-known people about their little-known obsessions. And for Jennifer Egan, that's really, really old buildings that are still around and totally out of place. What I'm specifically interested in are little buildings that don't have a storied history. I know that there are ways to find out about these buildings, but it involves much more deep record research mm-hmm. about documents. Exactly. Um, some of which I think are findable online, but it's certainly not as simple as Googling. Right now, what I find is just that I'm riveted by them. Like, it, it, it has completely changed the way I walk around New York. And I've lived here since 1987. My eye is always looking for these little revenants of the 19th century because little by little, this, this city is really changing. It's changed a lot mm-hmm. just since I've lived here. So I think that's part of what drives this curiosity. But then there are these little buildings that resist change, and it's mind-boggling. Like, who... Who refused to sell and why? Those are stories I'm dying to find out about. Jennifer takes photos of all these old buildings that she loves, including the Keller Hotel in New York City. It's boarded up now, but it was home to one of the city's oldest gay bars and kind of a refuge for people on the fringes of society. In honor of Jennifer's nerd obsession, we called up an expert who knows a lot about the Keller Hotel, Andrew Berman from the Greenwich Village Historical Society. 
Okay, Jennifer, we've got Andrew on the line to answer your questions about the Keller Hotel. But first, how much do you know about the hotel already? I know that it was a kind of waterfront hotel, um, and I guess sort of fancy originally. Uh, And the architect was the same one who did the Central Park Boathouse, who was a kind of well-known architect. Um, (laughs) And now is uh, kind of empty, as I understand (laughs) it. So I, I know just those bare bones, but I'd love to hear more. Sure. Well, those bare bones are accurate. It was built around 1898 by Julius Monkowitz. It was one of several maritime hotels in this part of town along the Greenwich Village waterfront, which at the turn of the last century was full of working docks. So actually, the folks who tended to stay here would have probably been sailors or people um, involved in the merchant trade. But as that declined in the 20th century, like a lot of these places, it became a little bit more of a kind of seedy, single-room occupancy kind of hotel. So, Andrew, for people, unlike Jennifer, who haven't maybe, like, stopped in the middle of the street to take a picture of this building, can you describe what it looks like now? Well, it definitely looks a bit run down. It's a um, six-story building. It's got these sort of handsome neoclassical details above the ground floor. Um, You know, it's sort of very finely proportioned in the way that these sort of Renaissance revival buildings are. You can tell that the building has seen better days, and it is right on West Street on the waterfront in Greenwich Village facing what's now a beautiful and very sort of highly sought after waterfront park. And to both the north and the south of this building, you have incredibly expensive, often glassy high rises that have gone up that are, you know, the apartments sell in the multiples of millions of dollars. This sort of rundown, boarded up, former single room occupancy hotel increasingly so uh, kind of sticks out in this environment. Yeah, I think that's why I ended up photographing it, because it really did stand out um, amidst these. I mean, that that part of the waterfront has changed so drastically. One thing that was so poignant to me as I was recent, because there's a whole sailing aspect of my book. I mean, it's interesting that these hotels or residences were so focused on the moral fiber of the sailors, because, again, just based on my research, you know, one reason men went to sea often had to do with various struggles that they were having that made it hard for them to fit into mainstream culture, such as alcoholism, drug addiction, and often homosexuality. Um, I spent a lot of time speaking with the interim director of the um, Merchant Marine Academy's museum space, and he made the point that in certain ways the merchant seaman population was very kind of forward thinking in ways that the mainstream population really wasn't at a, at an early point. Homosexuality, men of very different ethnicities and races and national origins working comfortably together. Um, white men having to accept that they were subordinate to men from other countries and of other races. So in certain ways, it was a somewhat enlightened population, but mm-hmm. certainly plagued by a lot of addiction and, and other, you know, difficulties. Mm-hmm. We definitely see a lot of this in the village in lower Manhattan in that there's clearly this kind of alternative world that's occupied in a lot of these working class districts where the sort of expectations, the structures, the hierarchies that exist in 
sort of conventional or mainstream society don't necessarily hear. And, you know, that sometimes can mean that there's a greater level of freedom. It sometimes can mean that there's a greater level of oppression. You do often see a mixing of people that you wouldn't see elsewhere, but you sometimes see tensions that you wouldn't necessarily see elsewhere. You also see sometimes an acceptance or a tolerance or an openness about gay people that wouldn't exist elsewhere, but you certainly see um, drug or alcohol uh, use or indulgence that wouldn't necessarily be tolerated in other places. It's clearly um, kind of a broad phenomenon that in communities like this, you see the standard rules of the day don't necessarily apply, and that can have some wonderful advantages. Um, It can also create some challenges as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. I can't decide if that sounds incredible or terrible. (laughs) Right. It's probably some of both. Andrew, thank you very much for chatting with us about the color today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you, Andrew. Great talking to you. Same here. Bye-bye. Coming up, homework from Jennifer Egan. This is Nerdette. And now, homework. I'm going to recommend, uh, especially for audiobook lovers, but really for anyone, Anthony Trollope's novels read by David Shaw Parker. These books have a million characters, male and female. Somehow, David Shaw Parker reads them so beautifully and so expertly that from one book to the next, I remember as soon as he starts to use a certain voice or accent exactly which character it is. That's amazing. And these books are all about power and money. There's the emotion in them. The strongest emotions are greed, um, (laughs) hunger, jealousy. Uh, it's it's delicious. So I find they feel tremendously relevant to me. Um, I'm reading the Barchester series right now, and so it's taking place in in the English countryside. Not exactly you would not think a hotbed of greed and jealousy, but it's all there. So I go from reading the newspaper to listening to these books, and I feel that one is reflecting brilliantly and de- deliciously upon the other. I, I cannot recommend th- this combination of David Shaw Parker and Anthony Trollope highly enough. Oh, that's excellent homework. And you know what people could add to it if they really wanted to get into the greed and power thing is the new show on the CW called Dynasty, which is exquisite greedy trash. Well, that'll be greedy <laughs> for me. But the great thing about Trollope is it's not even trash. It's like yeah, that excellent cool. 19th century fiction. It will and it will it will nourish and enrich you even as it utterly entertains you. Ooh, that is the best sort of homework. Jennifer Egan, thank you so much for coming on Nerdette. It has been a delight. Thank you. Honestly, I think I might have to rescind my recommendation for Dynasty. (laughs) It's not as good as I had hoped. That was an aspirational recommendation, and now that you're farther into Dynasty? I gave up. Oh, yeah. Rescinded. Yeah. Syllabus amended. <laughs> but Anthony Trollope sounds pretty great. Yeah. I love that Jennifer Egan is an audiobook nerd mm, like you. Me too. Absolutely. All, All right. the audiobooks. Stick with Egan's homework. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry so much about it. It's optional, Dynasty. 
Optional, not encouraged. <laughs> Dynasty. Optional, not encouraged. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, and our intern is B. Aldrich. Please subscribe wherever you're listening. Maybe that's Apple Podcasts or NPR One. You can also listen in the WBEZ app. A thing that is really helpful for you to do for us is to give us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to Melzi Nitz for the review. She had a really nice comment about how when you type Greta, it sometimes autocorrects into great, which she said was very accurate. And she mentioned that autocorrect changed Trisha to tricks, which she also felt was pretty accurate. So I thought it was kind of fun. My phone autocorrects my own name to trivia. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Mine does that, too, actually. Yeah. Tricks is a little better than trivia. I don't know. You like trivia? No, but also, if the phone is so smart, (laughs) shouldn't it at this point know at least on my phone and yours (laughs) that Trisha is a real name? (laughs) Yeah, certainly should. Also, fun fact. You know the new facial recognition thing on the phone? The iPhone? Yeah. My friend who's an identical twin says that it doesn't work. (gasps) That his twin can unlock his phone. Ooh, evil twins! I mean, hopefully not. You never know, man. Bizarro world twins. So yeah, if you're a twin, watch out. For your twin. That's your homework. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on the internet as at Podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Except the thing about Dynasty, because, you know, I mean, whatever. <laughs> Just forget it happened. It never happened. Thank you. I feel bad that I recommended it to Jennifer Egan. She doesn't have time for that. Just to write more books. <laughs> I watched The West Wing last night. Where mm. the president gets reelected, and Stockard Channing has this great line where she goes, "Hun, this is like nerd hot talk." <laughs> and I always want to like pull it out and just have it for Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.